are in First Kings, in chapter 7 and 8, we more or less will be in 8 today, so why don't we stand, let me get over here, First Kings chapter 8, and we'll read this a little bit to kind of get us familiar with what's going on. Of course, Solomon is building the temple, and uh, the, at this point in chapter 8, the temple is finished, everybody can stand. And uh, they're starting to furnish it, and Solomon then, uh, the, the most of chapter 8 is Solomon's prayer of dedication that we will get into a little bit today, and then uh, more so next week, or two weeks. But it says in uh, 1 Kings 8, beginning of verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast, the, the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. That's when it says out of the city of David. Technically, the temple was built just north of the uh, what was the old city of David. And, and so, it, it, of course, the walls were eventually came around and it became included in the Jerusalem. But that's why, why it says that they brought these things out of the city of David. Verse 3. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And we talked about those two big wooden, covered with gold, uh, ten foot high cherubim that, that spread their uh, wings out ten foot on each side. And the poles were so long that the end of the poles were seen from the holy place before, before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day. There is nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You may be seated. So a neat little section there, a lot of things going on there. We'll deal with that. Uh, we have dealt with some of that, but we'll deal with some more of that uh, today. Uh, the last thing that we looked at last week, though, remember the two pillars. Um, well, yeah, let me... Uh, Talk about right here. The two pillars are outside the temple door. Uh, Jachin was called one. Yahweh will establish. Boaz, Yahweh is strength. And I thought Romans 4.21 just kind of summed it up very well. Uh, where Paul says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Talking about Abraham. There you see it. God, first of all, decrees, he promises, he establishes what will be done, and then he, though, has the strength to do it, and nothing is demonstrate, demonstrates that better than the whole plan of salvation, from election uh, to the means of salvation, the Lord establishes all those things, and so it's extremely important that we understand that. 
Um, then, uh, well, no, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But, uh, so that was the last thing we dealt with, and that is the two uh, t- uh, uh, pillars that stood outside the door. Another thing seen in the details is that we uh, don't read about how the roof was put together, how deep the foundation was, things that would be interesting to interesting to an architect perhaps. But what we do read about are the details of of things that matter when it comes to typology, when it comes to the, the function of the uh, temple. The details point to the significance of what's going on in the temple. And, and so there's that. In other words, the, the things that we do study... They all relate to us in some way, the work of Christ, for instance, in the church. Uh, the, the other thing we might just mention, though, is that we are told to some degree, just like everything is covered in gold, and just the, the glory of the, the, the structure itself. There is an element of that that we can't appreciate because there's a, you know, there was no photographs taken, obviously, so... But but it, I think it's important that we understand, and we done a little bit with this last week, that this was a glorious structure, physically speaking, especially on the inside. And uh, it shows that this was detailed and symmetric. Those are some of the details that we see as well. And, and one of the things we see here is that this is a glorious thing. This is an, and, and that the gold teaches not that it's important that we have fancy or expensive things, but the gold in that day would indicate that this is very important, that this this matters. It's the glory of, and of course this is about the the church, about the work of Christ in in saving God's people. And so there's there's that. It was a glorious sight in that day that that spoke of importance and grandeur. And and the the work of God is an important, glorious thing. It is the the most glorious thing in a sense because God created the world and allowed things to go the way it did because he was always, the point was always to save, to demonstrate his mercy and the salvation of sinners, right? So, so the, the work of Christ, and that's why sometimes we talk about the cross being the center point of history, because it was that's all it is, that's all it, that's why we're here. That God God is doing His work of salvation, and there's other things that are part of that: the kingdom, the 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 judgment of sinners. All all these things are. That's why we're here, and so it's important. So so. This isn't just a building that that Solomon threw together. There, there, uh, it's an important thing, uh, as well as, of course, for Israel, it was important uh, for their in their historical context as well. And then also, it demonstrates the wisdom and power and glory of God. In other words, God gave the direction, you know, the the blueprints for all this. And I think, again, since it represents to some degree not just Christ but the church because we are living stones that are building up this body of Christ, it reminds us that um, the church is not just something that, well, we meet when we want to. We just, you know, we gather at somebody's house and whenever it's convenient and we just sit around and, we don't, you know, there's a lot of people who, well, I don't, we don't, I don't like the, the formal church. 
with its bylaws and its structure. I just want to be free to meet and to discuss the Bible and talk about Jesus or whatever, you know. They didn't they don't like structure. And they don't like they don't like laws, they don't like order. But of course God is not the order author of confusion, right? And we see here, and we see it later in the church too, that that, that there are uh, certain principles that God expects us to obey when it comes to the building of the church. We're not free to just do it any way we want to. So I'm not surprised that the Lord gives the blueprint and that this is done in a very orderly fashion because of what it depicts. Some people say, well, we just need to be like Acts 2 and, and we're... Well, you know, they just met wherever they could, and, and they were visiting each other's houses and all this kind of stuff. Well, okay, let's not get, because this is not an unusual error that people fall into. What, How the church dealt with its situation in the first few months of its existence is one thing. Uh, I think, though, if we probably, you could make a case that there that there was structure there, too. But we have the pastoral epistles. We have especially Paul's writings that lets us know that how the church was to organize itself. That just because it maybe it looks like in Acts 2 that the church was kind of just meeting wherever it could and there was no structure. Uh, clearly the church is to have structure. We are to have membership and we are to have, a, uh, there is to be accountability. The, the church has a function to be the ground and the pillar of truth. And that, that requires uh, understanding uh, what's going on in leadership and, and, and organization, right? So we've got to be careful that we don't think that the primitive church wasn't what it is today. It was because we have Paul in the pastoral epistles, for instance, giving us uh, very, very uh, clear principles about how the church is to be organized and what its functions are. So... Uh, again, I, I, I think there's a connection here with just the way we see the Lord do this. This was not haphazard. He was in full control. And then if you think about it, if that's how the church is to be organized and to be to understand its function and what it's here for and, and so forth, and if we are, in, in a sense, that third type of a temple, right, we are individually a dwelling place of God, then I think there's a sense we are to have a bit of an order in our own lives as well. That we, we take how we live seriously. We are not just to live haphazardly. We talked about this recently about we, we are not people who just live by our emotions. We, we, have, uh, we have the Bible to tell us how to live, how to think, what our life is for, how we are to live as Christians, which includes, of course, the church as well. So, uh, here, I think this passage would be an example of that. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So there was discipline. So in the local church, there is order, there is structure, there is leadership, and, and all these things. And so it is in, our, in your own life, in your in, in your own mind. There's structure. You're, you're, we got to be very careful that we don't fall into this trap of just uh, I got to be free to be me, free to do what I want to do, and 
And, you know, you, you see it a lot in movies and, and, and things where uh, some guy just decides, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go down the road, I'm going to do, I'll just work whenever I need it, and I'm just going to be free to do whatever I want to do. Well, and you end up accomplishing nothing, right? You, you say, well, I'm free. Yeah, you're free, but you're free to accomplish nothing because you're living a life that is undisciplined. And so, again, I think those are things that are, are very biblical principles that I don't think are disconnected to our text here to some degree. So God is concerned over details, which we see that here too. And we might ask, why, why all the, 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 the uh, all the, uh, bringing out the, 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 the gold and how this little thing was made and, and this pin over here and all these kind of things. And, uh, I, I, because God, this is for God. And, and, God is concerned with everything that's going on. I was reading about a uh, man who came over from Europe who was very good at, um, at, at, at fine craft and building things and details. And he, he spent his life in America going around to, I guess, different uh, church structures uh, and, and just doing things, that beautiful things. In the uh, churches and building the, the details of it all, and and the in uh, and, and especially the interior details. And one day he's working, and he's working in such a place that was that from the floor you really couldn't see what he was doing. It was something that was out of sight unless you were up high. And he was spending a lot of time on it. And someone was down down on the floor and saying, "Why are you spending so much time uh, on something that nobody really sees?" And he says, well, God sees it, right? I'm doing this for the Lord. Uh, this, this is something that we're, we're doing. We're worship. It's a place of worship where we're worshiping God. And so detail is important. And I think there's something to be said about that. Uh, most of the glory of the tabernacle, of the temple, was not going to be seen, except for just a very few priests at any one time, right? So, so why does it matter? Because it's for the Lord, because of what it teaches because this is part of worship. And of course, we're in the Old Testament yet, so things are shadowy. Things are being revealed slowly and darkly. And are we not being told that nothing is too good, too well done for the Lord, because this is the Lord's work? We, we need to be careful that we give our best to the Lord in, in what we, in ever, whatever we happen to be doing, because it's all for His, supposed to be done for His honor and glory. We don't want to give him slop. We don't want to be careless. You know, I don't want to be a church with a fancy building and offer sloppiness to the Lord. And I don't want to be a church with a little simple building and offer sloppiness to the Lord, right? What we're doing here is important. It doesn't matter whether there's a thousand people gathered here or twenty. What we're doing is the exact same thing that the larger church is doing. We're offering up praise the Lord, and that's why God saved us to offer up praise the Lord and to hear from Him. And so, small or big, it's what we're doing is what matters, and we we want to be do the same as we do whether we are small or large. And so, as we said last week, this doesn't mean that our buildings are to be lavish, but that our spiritual worship is to take precedent over everything else. 
might be better to say that we are to be careful to worship in every in everything we do it is to, it is to, to glorify the Lord it is to be an act of worship to him and that makes it important right um, <clears throat> then I I just thought I would uh, put this on the screen uh, there you can go online and see all kind of depictions of the temple I'll, I'll do one of the interior maybe in a couple of weeks but uh, I did this one because they all some. I think they all have their problems. Sometimes I'm not exactly sure why. For instance, the it says that the the temple structure is 30 cubits tall, which is true. Um, but the problem is it was 60 feet wide or long and uh, 30 feet. Uh, well, you see, it's got 20 cubits there. There's 60 cubits that way and 30 cubits up. But but if you look at this, it doesn't really. Come out that way. So don't, I'm just, this is just something to give you a general idea of what it looks like. For instance, the pillars are said to be just over 30 cubits tall, which means they don't have them anywhere near as tall as they should be, right? So, uh, that's just kind of, I'm more concerned with the things on the outside here because we're going to talk about the labor in just a moment. They were to have three oxen on all four sides. The uh, altar, which they depict as being very big, which very well could be, who knows. Then there's these little uh, vats of water that uh, were uh, there too, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I thought I'd just kind of, because nobody knows really how, I don't think it was, one reason I like this is because it doesn't depict the outside as being particularly fancy, because I don't think it was, I think the the glory was for the inside. But the uh, in verse 23 of, uh, chapter 7, it talks about the labor, which they say is, was probably 16 to 20,000 gallons. So it was real big. So they do depict that as being a pretty good. I, I would think that this is a little impractical because there's no way to get to the labor and use it the way they have it depicted. Uh, I think the, the labor basically was a pool. And, and probably the priest bathed in it and they, they, it was a ceremonial way to wash their entire bodies. And, uh, but then, it had these uh, smaller uh, vats that were anywhere from 10 to 200 gallons that they would use just to wash the animals and utensils and other things. Not you know, the men would, the priests would wash in the big pool. Uh, then these other ones were used for cleaning other things, and they were around there. So it does depict that as well. Anyway, that brings us to chapter eight, where they kind of bring all the uh, furnishings and things. In the temple, it, it begins to be used. So the ark, of course, was brought in. And if you think about it, it's good to remember, the tabernacle, the temple, primarily, the ark was the, was the main piece of furniture in those saints. You know, it, what, that was the most important thing. And all these other things, both inside and outside, were to get you to the, uh, uh, ark, right? Cause that represents the presence of God. Remember, it says that once they brought all this stuff in, that the Lord came down in the Shekinah glory cloud. And, uh, that, that symbolized his presence, that it was now, it was, it was, it was ready to function as the temple. And so, the, another thing that for Israel, the, the Ark of the Covenant not only represented the, the dwelling place of God that they were separated from and they needed to get to through the forgiveness of sins, it also contained the Ten Commandments. It contained their covenant. 
And we'll talk a little bit about that too. So those are two extremely important things that if you don't understand that and, and why it's like that, you really don't understand what the temple is being used for. And, of course, we dealt with all this when we looked at the tabernacle, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on today. And so in chapter 8, though, we have the dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayer of dedication. The ark is brought in when it's completed. The, the Shekinah glory cloud descends. And, of course, this uh, happened the first time with the tabernacle, Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, Understand that that was uh, initially, uh, that was uh, basically uh, reduced to just the most holy place after that. Otherwise, the priest couldn't uh, go in at all. And the same thing happens here. But I think we see the connection that the same, it's the same thing going on because it's basically the same principle, the same building. And then in uh, verses 12 through 21, Solomon kind of prays a preamble to his prayer of dedication where he just kind of talks about what what's going on and the history of all this. He says in, in verse 12, and Solomon said, The Lord has said that he will dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city but all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well when it was in your heart. Nevertheless, in other words, it was your your motivation and your desire was right. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son, son shall, who shall be born to you shall build a house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he has made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel. As the Lord has promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and there I have provided a place for the ark. So you see that what what the labor, the altar, the the three pieces of furniture on the inside, all those things are important. But this was basically the tabernacle of the temple was a place for the ark, in which the covenant of the Lord that He made with our fathers when He brought them out of the land. Of Egypt, <clears throat> and so you see, he's kind of just kind of rehashing what what's happened and why all this is going on, bringing us to this point. And then, starting in verse twenty-two, he's going to have this prayer of dedication that's extremely interested and important, and we'll hopefully get to a little bit of it today. <clears throat> but here, he points out that the Lord dwells in inaccessible. Uh, darkness in this cloud. The, the cloud, in a sense, speaks of the eminence of the Lord, that he is close by, um, but it's a cloud. He's hidden. So it speaks of his transcendence. And there's two ways that the, the theologians talk about the Lord is, in one sense, above us, that he's, 
he's he's far away from us because he's God, he's holy, he's he's unlike us because he's our creator. So so he's he's transcendent. But we know also because of Christ he's he's imminent, he's he's close. And uh so the tabernacle allowed God to dwell with Israel and yet not too close. There was still that separation, right? It wasn't until Christ died that the veil was torn, that access is now given to us to the Lord. And so so David or Solomon is kind of pointing these things out. And then in verse 9, he tells us that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets. Now this is interesting because you think about it, there are some who believe that there were three things in the ark. Anybody think about what they might be? Manna, the bowl of manna. Aaron's rod that budded, right? And so, I, you know, in studying this out, I think I've had to, because I used to assume that as well, and I, in studying this out, I, I've had to kind of uh, tweak my understanding of that. I don't believe that they were in the ark. And so, there's some scriptures that seem to indicate they were. So, let's just deal with that for a second, because it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, many believe that the jar of man and, and Aaron's rod were originally in the ark, but at some point, obviously, they, it says they weren't here now. And so at some point, they were probably removed. And I think that's very unlikely, because when would that have taken place? The only place, because Israel never went into it, it, the Jews never went into it, and the only place it could have taken place would have been when the Philistines had it for a while, Remember that when they looked in, just looked into it, they were smitten with diseases, and and if they were going to take anything out, it would have been the law, because they knew exactly what that those tablets were. The bow of man and the rod would not have been of that much interest, right? So I don't think that you could say that. Well, because just think how haphazard that is. That over the centuries, just some things disappeared from the ark. But no, the ark was like the most important thing in Israel's life in a sense. So. It's, I don't think that was the case. Um, in Exodus 16.33, though, we read, And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to keep throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And really the same thing was said about Aaron's rod that budded. And so I think what we have here is where they... To, to be brought before the Lord would have been to be placed in all, in all likelihood in the most holy place beside the Ark of the Covenant. I think there's a sense in which the manna represents the, the bread of God, the bread from heaven, the word of God represents Jesus' body, as it were. The Aaron's rod that budded represents Christ as the priest, because Aaron was the high priest. So they, they were significant. Um, but someone might say, well, "What about Hebrews nine four nine four? Having the talking about the uh, the ark, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant." <clears throat> that sounds like they were inside. Well. In the Greek, the the words that the, the, some translations 
would translate as wherein, in which, or contain can also be translated in, on, by, or with. And so it, a case could be made that while the tablets of the covenant obviously were inside, that the other things didn't necessarily have to be inside. They, they could have been uh, alongside or with in the, in the same vicinity. So, and so what we read here in First Kings that that it would make sense then that when we read in First in, in First Kings eight talking about the ark that the only thing in it and the only thing ever in it were the was the covenant the law the the two tables of stone that Moses brought down from Sinai the other things while significant uh, they weren't the covenant and it's that covenant that that, that which represents the Law of God, the holiness of God, that covenant that had been broken, because sin is a transgression of the law, right? And so, the, the thing that matters, and again, if if the other things were in there, fine. If if they got taken out at some point, fine. Doesn't change anything. I just think it's unlikely. The the significant things, and that's certainly I think why First Kings talks about this, is because it was those the law of God that had been transgressed transgressed that separates God from his people. Sin, right? And so is the, the whole temple structure was how to get uh, that uh, our sins forgiven. How to remove the transgression against the law. And that law that 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 uh the, the mercy seat represents of course the, the very nature of God that had been Transgressed, and so that—that's really the important thing for sure, uh, regardless perhaps of anything else that uh, would be in it or beside it. And so all this blessing in the prayer of dedication starts in verse 22. We're taught something very interesting about the God, and I'm going to deal a little bit with that in closing, and we'll get more get, get finish that up, Lord willing, the next time. But there's something extremely interesting, but I think also very important when it comes to the use of the temple, especially in Solomon's day, in Israel's day. What's a lot of Solomon's prayer here, when you start reading, starting in verse 22 on, Solomon uh, says that when you pray, you pray towards the temple, and God will hear you. When you sin, and you ask for forgiveness. You pray towards the temple. You don't have to. You don't have to go to the temple, although that's something that they did, obviously. But if you will just pray to the temple, if if the nation sins and they're carried off in captivity, it's one of the uh, examples he uses. If you pray towards the temple, I'll forgive you. All right. So this is a, this is something new. This is not something they do not use the tabernacle like this. And so I think there's something very interesting here that we need to think about. Um, again, we, we've learned that he's, tr- he's transcendent and near at the same time. The Lord dwells out of our view, but he has ordained a house to be built that he might dwell among his people. And it is the old covenant at this time where he's still not easily acceptable but we're learning how that the Old Testament saint could come near to the Lord and be forgiven. 
The cloud, as we spoke about in verse 21, is a sign of his nearness, and yet it, it conceals him, right? It both reveals and hides him. And so the ark contained that covenant, which was the, a clear word from God. Jesus, we know, of course, this, this, all this pictures Jesus Christ. Jesus as the temple of God, the very person of God. Uh, he is the mercy seat. He is that place where the blood is, was, uh, uh, shed so that we, uh, our sins could be forgiven. He kept the law perfectly. And he reveals God in all his glory. And so what we have in all this is, is the, the clarity and yet the mystery of God. There's still the old covenant. There's still a lot of mystery going on here. But as we go back and we look at all this, we begin to see how all this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his work. And, and so Jesus Christ comes along and he does his work and he says, uh, and we're going to, of course, celebrate the Lord's table. And he says that... My blood is the new covenant. So just as the temple in the Old Testament contained the covenant, the old covenant, the, the, the Jesus Christ now in the New Testament, he contains the new covenant. He is the new covenant. The, the old covenant didn't work too well, but we needed a new covenant, and Jesus Christ is that new covenant. So there's another way in which he kind of revealed... These things reveal him. And in verse 23 and 24, we read here, um, And the Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, what I like about what he's saying here is that it gives us a little insight into the fact that the clearest view that we have of God until that day when we stand before him is through his word. And notice what he says here that um, in verse 24, Who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled this, this day. All we've got uh, before we die, certainly before the general resurrection, is all we know about God, God only reveals himself through the written word. And that's, and that's enough. And that's all Solomon had. And he was happy with that. You have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us. And this is one reason why you cannot have a clearer view of Christ than when you hear the word of God proclaimed. We don't need a clear word. We don't need Jesus Christ coming and appearing to us at the foot of our bed. It's not going to reveal God anymore to us. What we need is a clear word from him. And that's why in Revelation, Jesus was walking among the seven churches. He was, he was represented as that uh, lamp. Um, is because the churches were to be the pillar and ground of the truth. If we're going to see Christ, it's going to be it, as a church proclaims the word of God. That's how we re, God reveals himself in this dispensation. And so the, the, the glory of God is seen in the church as we re, are faithful to preach and to, of course, live the word of God. 
And so what I'm saying here is that he reveals himself through truth, through words, through concepts, through holiness, through, through our minds as the spirit works in those things, right? And that's what, that's what, that's why what we do at church is to sing truth, to preach truth, to explain the words from God, because how else will we know God? You don't know God by your feelings. You know, so many people think that, well, God's speaking to me, He gives me these thoughts, He gives me these feelings. No, he's revealed himself through the truth, and that's what we need to emphasize and to be content with, because we have a clear word when Christ came into the world as the word of God, and, and, the, and that has been given to us. And that's important. That's an important doctrine that we want to make sure that we emphasize from time to time, because it's, it's easy to, to get far away from that. <clears throat> and so... In verse 23, he also says that there is no God like the true God. and uh, He is seen as a faithful God, a covenant-keeping God who, who loves. Um, in verse 24, he speaks and he does. He's both far and near. And we might not appreciate this, but, but Solomon seems to make much of this. And I think there's a reason behind that, because <clears throat> this is what separates him from all false gods. Human deities are not known for their faithfulness. In fact, they are usually have passions much like humans. Because you think about it, humans are the ones who have thought up fake deities. So it's no surprise that they look and act and think a lot like humans, sinful man, right? So <clears throat> they're supposed to be divine, but usually that means that they either are maybe are happy, live eternally in some way, or they have some certain amount of power. You know, all the, the the Marvel comics and all that kind of stuff. All the the these guys, the superheroes, which are really just a, a carryover of, of the you know Greek mythology and so forth. They don't have all power, but they all have their special power, right? In some way or another. And and so that's what that's what they think. They're they're divine in that sense. Because they're higher than they're they're more than man. But they're not, they're not that quite removed from man either, in a, in a sense. <clears throat> so just because they are supposedly divine in whoever made them up, it doesn't seem to mean that they are above jealousies and pettiness and lies. The, 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 the gods of this world aren't that much different than humans, other than they're a little bit more powerful, right? So the problem is that they couldn't be counted on, and, and if you study you know, world's religions and certainly Greek mythology, you find out that they, they really can't be counted on because they're riddled with their own problems as well. And no, you know. And so in, in pagan religions, there, there, there's usually an ace up the sleeve. There's, we call, you know, may say a magic trump card because the, the, the God isn't quite doing what he said he was going to do. And so there's always some prayer or spell or rite in which you can manipulate the God and get them to do what you want them to do. And the reason is because they're fickle. You just don't know what you're going to get from one day to the next. And so fickle men can only come up with a fickle God, right? <clears throat> but, but what Solomon is telling us is that Yahweh is not like any of this. He's incomparable to the best that man can come up with. 
in effect, he says he is not fickle. He is um, true. He has fidelity, and fidelity breeds expectancy. Expectancy. In other words, if 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 our God, when He says something, we know that He's going to do it, and we know that He is able to do it, we have reason to hope. Reason to believe that what he says will come to pass. We don't have to worry about, well, you know, we find out that next year he's changed his mind about something, right? And so, um, you got Isaiah 64, 46, 4. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. I will bring my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So you see that that, that means something. Now all of a sudden, um, we find out that God is a God who can be trusted. That he's not he's not a God like us. He doesn't change. He's not fickle, and so we can count on him no matter what. Well, I didn't really get. It's getting too late. I was. I really never got to the whole point of all this, which is. Uh, what it means to be able to pray to the towards the temple, but that's just there's just way too much there for me to try to say that in a couple of minutes. But we'll keep all these things in mind, and we'll, we'll kind of bring it all together. Lord willing, next week. Any any questions or comments? All right, let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day. We thank you for the Word of God, and or mostly we thank you for Jesus Christ, who uh, did what we could not do, and has saved us by grace. Lord, our trust is in him and him alone. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are a God who loves us and, and has, uh, has provided, not just provided salvation, but has seen to it that we are safe in Christ and we'll be with you forever. And so we pray that our faith might grow this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.